in the Minor Prophets of the Old Testament. And we've come now to the book of Jonah. Well, most uh, everyone, I think, is pretty well familiar with uh, the story about Jonah. And uh, we've probably known that since we were in kindergarten or preschool. Um, some of you may not have heard it as children. You were, lived a deprived childhood. And uh, you uh, weren't able to be in church or hear the Bible stories as others have. But uh, uh, we come to Jonah, and uh, we're going to look at uh, this this book. Uh, it's uh, another short four-chapter book, uh, but I don't think I can get it done in four, four messages. So uh, uh, we'll uh, see how it goes here. We're looking at Jonah chapter 1, and we're just going to look at verses 1 through 3, and our message is entitled, Running from God. Running from God. Now, uh, Jonah uh, is often said to be a book of surprises. Uh, It's surprising that a prophet of Israel would be called to preach a message of judgment in the midst of his enemies. Uh, It's surprising that the prophet rejected his obligation to the divine call. Uh, It's surprising that God does not take his life. You know, when he says no, uh, God could have said, okay, that's it. But God preserves him, and he preserves him in a most unusual way. It's equally surprising that an entire wicked metropolis, uh, metropolis uh, would humbly bow in repentance before the simple message of the prophet and plead for the mercy of God. And perhaps it is also surprising that the success of the prophet's message is met with unmeasured despondency. But you know, the book of Jonah, though it's full of surprises, is really not about the surprises. Nor is it about a great fish. Uh, nor is it about a reluctant prophet. It's chiefly a book about God. Jonah helps us to understand the greatness of God's mercy and the extent of his missionary heart. The, mis- mission, uh, the messenger might run, but he cannot thwart the purposes of the sovereign Lord. So we're going to consider the unfolding of the verses here, the beginning of the book, and see the hand of God at work. Notice, first of all, the privilege of God's messenger. The opening phrase of the book of Jonah is not an unusual formula in the Old Testament. Uh, It says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying... It's not unusual for the Old Testament. Uh, Throughout the law, the historical books, the prophetic books, we find the same formula, the same thing announcing uh, the prophetic oracles. We perhaps see it so often that we don't even catch the magnitude of it. The word of the Lord came. Uh, We're not considering just another message by another voice wandering through the sea of humanity. But we're hearing the voice of Almighty God. God has spoken. 
And when God speaks, he speaks so with purpose and authority and clarity. The Lord told Isaiah in Isaiah 55, For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Now, God spoke to Jonah with the same authority that he spoke to Isaiah. He gave the prophet a message, and that prophet had the responsibility to faithfully deliver it without diluting it, without changing the message. You see, Jonah understood his task. It was not a Johnny, he was not a Johnny come lately when it comes to prophetic work. Though we do not have a lengthy treatment of Jonah outside the book called by his name, we do have a reference to him in 2 Kings, which demonstrates that Jonah knew what he was to hear from God and deliver the message faithfully. So looking at, first of all, past experience. 2 Kings chapter 14, you just turn back there for a moment. And let's see some background uh, of Jonah or the fact that God was going to use a man like him. At a time when the nation Israel continued into idolatry and sin, God spoke to Jonah to offer encouragement to the nation under the reign of Jeroboam uh, the second the great-grandson of Jehu. The nation expanded their borders from the Damascus to the north, to the Dead Sea in the south. And this came about after the prophetic message of Jonah is recorded there in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 24. It says there, And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam of the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restoreth the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet which was of Gathifer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord said, not that he would, uh, said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam and the son of Joash. Jonah had uh, certainly played an important role in the life of nation of Israel as he prophesied of the Lord restoring their land in spite of the continuing rebellion of the state nation. And amazingly, God showed his mercy to the nation in saving them through the hand of an ungodly king, Jeroboam. And though they prospered as a nation in material things, their spiritual lives continued to sink drastically. Jonah was likely applauded 
and admired because he had prophesied the blessing of the Lord upon the people of Israel. He was known around Israel as one who had prophesied the blessing of God upon them. And yet no prophet of God could be satisfied with only material prosperity while spiritual lives were at an all-time low. (coughs) Kind of reminds us of the day in which we live, isn't it? Material blessing that we enjoy, but it seems our nation is at spiritually at an all-time low. Now, though we do not have a record of what was running through Jonah's mind, I believe we are safe to assume that while he was gratified that he delivered the word of the Lord, which brought material blessing to Israel, he still longed to see the nation brought back to humbly walking with God. And for that desire, uh, I think it was kind of a part, a very integral part of the prophet Jonah. Now, many commentators would suggest Jonah may have been a part of the famed school of prophets under the tutelage of Elisha, the man of God. Uh, He would have been trained in spiritual disciplines, would have lived with a burden for seeing his own nation have spiritual blessing. Uh, One account says that Jonah was the son of a widow of Zarephath, whom Elijah raised from the death. Uh, We don't know about that, but that's that's an idea. And afterward, he was set apart for future ministry. All of these kind of are guesses about his past. But it seems, given the 8th century era in which he lived, he would have been influenced by the prophetic leadership of Elijah or Elisha. Uh, He was grieved over the sin of the nation and their unwillingness to seek the, the face of the Lord, to hear and to take heed to his word. I don't believe he was a disinterested prophet. So that's a little bit about his past. Notice, secondly, divine calling. Jonah would not have thought it unusual to receive another message from the Lord. Uh, This time, surely it would be a, a message to the nation of Israel, calling for Jeroboam to turn from his sin and the nation to repent before God. But instead, Jonah is faced with his worst nightmare. Now, the normal pattern for prophets was to deliver, deliver oracles to their own nation. A century later, Nahum, the prophet, would deliver an oracle to Nineveh, though we do not know if he actually went to the city or sent a written prophecy. But when we think of the Old Testament prophets, we normally consider them going to the covenant people of Israel. But the obligation of the prophet was to go and speak wherever God commanded. In this case, the Lord sent his messenger to Nineveh. Now, what was running through Jonah's mind as he received the word of the Lord to go to Nineveh and preach against their wickedness, we don't really know, but we kind of have an idea. You know, first, the calling of God often reveals divine intention, but by this I would imply that if God was calling Jonah to go to Nineveh, he was likely preparing to show great mercy to them. We might look at that and we'd say, well, that's wonderful. But Jonah didn't think it was wonderful. To him, Nineveh represented the totality of Israel's enemies. These were ruthless people, and he despised them. Uh, they were known for their uh, their cruelty. 
If we just uh, uh, skip ahead a little bit and and check out what Nahum had to say concerning uh, uh, Nineveh. Uh, this is uh, a little ahead of ourselves in in the minor prophets, but uh, uh, it gives us some some interesting in, uh, information. Nahum three, beginning in verse one, it says a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet unto uh, Shigingaloth, O Lord, I have heard thy speech, and I'm in uh, Habakkuk and not Nahum. I had Nahum there in my sights there for a moment. There it is. And then I skipped right over it. Let's go to Nahum 3. Woe to the bloody city! It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling of the wheels and the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. Exciting, huh? The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there is multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses, and there is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. Because the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts, that selleth nations through her whoredoms and the families through her witchcrafts. Yeah, that's not too exciting. That's pretty disgusting. But it kind of gives us a picture of these people. And you can kind of understand how Jonah, oh, I don't want to go to those people. Those people are terrible. The scene here of butchering the masses, showing no mercy, living in gross immorality, that's the description of Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go there, and he did not want God to show them any mercy. They don't deserve it. He wanted all the mercy to go to Israel, not to Israel's enemy. Uh, Jonah understood that if God was sending him, then he intended to show forth his mighty hand to save this pagan people. Ah, it doesn't sound like he was very missionary-minded, does he? He didn't have a missionary's heart. The prejudice of Jonah's heart came to the surface. While he had been prophesying to Israel of their sin, Jonah had sin in his own heart. Perhaps he feared that God's blessing and attention would shift from Israel to Nineveh. Now, there's a second reason here, not only did he want, did not want to God to show mercy, but a second reason to Jonah's objection was the divine call was he was fearful of being in Nineveh. Now, you and I might be fearful too, given the description of these people. One writer compared it to a Jew being sent to Berlin, Germany during the midst of Hitler's reign of terror. And he's commanded to publicly preach in the city. Jonah had thought he had no chance. If he went to these hateful people, they'd eat him for lunch. Yet the record of God's word is that what God, when God sends his servant, his servant goes with his divine protection. And, we can, and I believe we can claim that for our missionaries as well. The removal of that protection can only come by way of the unfolding will of God. Jonah's determination not to go to Nineveh 
put him on a collision course with the will of God. And the evidence of this book will help us understand, I believe, that God would accomplish his purposes even in spite of our objections. And so our responsibility is to bend in submission to the unfolding will of God in our lives. We need not fear God's will, nor attempt to run from it, for it is the center of his, in the center of His will that we come to know the richest sense of God's presence. I mean, I, I wonder, do you ever find yourself running from the Word of God? You read something and say, oh, wait a minute, that's way too much for me. We'll take a lesson from Jonah. It's time to stop running and start obeying. So there's the privilege. Secondly, the mercy shown to the wicked. And so we come to verse 2. And verse 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. He said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now again, we know a little bit about Nineveh, but Nineveh was uh, at this time was at the at the top of their uh, success or whatever you want to call it. It was a great city. It was a, surrounded by a wall, which stood one hundred feet tall. It was wide enough for three wagons to ride abreast. I mean, it's a, this is not just a fence. <laughs> this is a wall. 1,500 towers along this, uh, around this, uh, that they were 200 feet tall at the intervals throughout the 60 miles of the wall that surrounded the city. It was filled with parks and gardens, and the city displayed wealth, great wealth. God was far from Nineveh's eyes. They were very wealthy, very materialistic. They were very immoral. No one could conquer the center, the center of the Assyrian Empire. Like the Laodiceans, she thought she was rich and increased with goods and had need of nothing. That's Nineveh. So we look, first of all, at God's discovery. Uh, Nineveh's wickedness drew the attention of the living God. Of course, nothing surprises God. But it says here, for their wickedness has come up before me. Were there not more nations on the face of the earth at that time? Sure there were. Was there not more wickedness in other areas of the world? Certainly there was. But God discovered the wickedness of Nineveh. And I do not mean that he knew nothing about it and finally came across, oh, 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 here's a, uh, we got a problem over here. No. The discovery of Nineveh's sin evidenced divine mercy. And we know from Romans chapter 1 that when man rejects the natural revelation of God in the conscience and in nature, the time comes when God gives them over to their sin. And that is a discovery without mercy. Sin without mercy. That's a discovery of sin without mercy. And to have given her over to the sin shows that we are heading at breakneck speed to divine judgment. The greatest curse that it could ever be brought to a nation is for God 
not to discover its sin. The greatest curse of all is when he ignores our sin. So God's discovery of sin is its uncovering. When we say discover, we mean it's its uncovering. Uh, The omniscient God knows the depth of our sin, but when people's wickedness has come up before God, as it says here, then you know that he has uncovered it so that people might understand their wretchedness before God. Is that not what happened to David when he sinned with Bathsheba? David was dealing with his guilt just fine until the prophet Nathan looked at him and said, Thou art the man. David's sin was uncovered, and he found himself smitten before God. And when the voice of Jesus Christ called out to Saul of Tarsus, On the Damascus road, his sin was uncovered before him, and he cried out, Who art thou, Lord? Isaiah the prophet had been used mightily of God in delivering one oracle after another, but when he had uh, that throne room vision in Isaiah chapter 6, his sin was uncovered so that Isaiah cried, Woe is me, for I am undone. So the discovery of sin came with great the greatness of divine mercy. And I would propose this afternoon to you that the most merciful thing that happened to anyone of us is for God to discover or uncover our sin. For in God discovering our sins, we discover them and what they are as an offense to Him. Because if He appears to be ignoring it, then we are certain that the severity of his judgment will be very severe rather than merciful. You may complain that the Lord exposed your heart to you, but you fight against the guilt and the conviction that follows, then you're really in trouble. Listen, that is a display of divine mercy to show you who you are and what you are. We dare not reject his mercy. So there's God's discovery. Secondly, there's God's action. As God discovered, or as we said, uncovered Nineveh's sin, he also sent his messenger to call them to repentance. I wonder, do you see, do not we see the greatness of God's character unveiled in this scene? What did Nineveh, what had Nineveh done for God? How often had they worshiped him? How often had they sought his face? How many years had they been praying for revival in their midst? That was not happening. There were no prayer meetings in Nineveh. Lord, send a revival. You don't see people in Nineveh seeking God or desiring him. There are no prayers for revival within her walls. Instead, we find God who takes action to call out a people for himself, even a people who had no interest in him. And that's why Jonah is a story of God's action to save unworthy and uninterested sinners. In divine pity, the Lord sent forth his prophet to declare his solitary message of hope. And even with the prophet's rebellion, God still worked to use his designated prophet to turn the hearts of the Ninevites to himself. 
Now, if you ever doubt or question about some missionary's intentions, so, or I should say the, the missionary intentions of God, well, we just need to read this book. There is no plausible explanation for sending a prophet to Nineveh except to demonstrate divine mercy to sinners. And we could join with Jonah and say, well, that the needs at home are far too great for a prophet to be invading an unwanted territory. And we have missionaries could have said that too. They could have said, well, the needs are too great here. I'm not going to go to the mission field. But Israel was not right with God. And though they were a people of God's favor, they were full of idolatry and immorality, and they had a smug self-dependence. They had increased in wealth and stature, thinking they had no need of God. And would it not seem that God would have given priority to point this out to Israel? I wonder, can we accuse the Lord God of neglecting the home front to save a few savage people? Would Jonah not be wasting his time trying to preach to a people who were filled with wickedness? They had no desire for God. You know, if we follow that logic, then the gospel would never have entered the sphere of the earth. Once in Jerusalem, it would have stayed and gone no farther. But you know what? The thrust of the scripture is that he's calling forth a people out of every kindred, every tongue, and people and nation. Revelation 5, 9. Whom he has redeemed through Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross. Now that brings us to, thirdly, the folly of running from God. And that brings us to verse 3. After receiving the call to go to Nineveh, we find the tragic words, but Jonah. Those are probably some good words to kind of put a star by or underline, but Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Here's the word in verse 2 that he gave to Jonah. Verse 3, but Jonah. Instead of following faithfully after the word of the Lord, Jonah had in his own mind made up, uh, his own mind made up in just what he would do and just how far he would go in his faithfulness to the Lord. It says, But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of of the Lord. Notice the character of man disclosed. Jonah was guilty of going AWOL, absent without leave. He rose to go rose up to flee and to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. God had sent him to Nineveh. He struck out for the farthest point he knew, Tarshish, a port somewhere on the coast of Spain. Be like one of us trying to head maybe to New Zealand or someplace. You know, the farthest we could get away from from here. The farthest we thought we could get away from God. It was so far away from Israel and the place of God's presence that Jonah thought, 
I can shake this heavy mantle of God's calling off. We can almost picture the scene. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah to go to Nineveh. Perhaps he agonizes for a a short while over the whole matter, knowing that God does not have to speak twice to mean what he says. And so he goes to his bank. He gets his savings, uh, uh, empties his savings account. He he goes and packs his clothes and heads down to Gath-Hepher to the sea, a port of Joppa. He just happens to find a ship. Just happens. Remember that, okay? He just happens to find a ship heading to Tarshish. Boy, he was lucky. But if it was not luck, when the, it is not luck when the sovereign Lord orchestrates the events to demonstrate his glory. Jonah immediately heads down into the hold of the ship. He finds his sleeping arrangements and he tries to sleep away the burden of the Lord. So the ship heads out into the Mediterranean Sea. Jonah thinks he can run from the Lord's presence since in his mind the Lord has, was localized only in Israel. That's what he thought. And then he discovers that God does not just dwell only in Israel, but he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And there was probably a lot of rationalization going on in Jonah's mind. He would be shamed before his whole nation if he went over to that enemy and he preached to them. He said, what would people think if I go to these heathen people? And then he'd never be able to set foot back in the pulpit in Israel. And besides, his exit plant went through without hitch. He didn't have any problem. Jonah might have considered the ease of his leaving as an open door. How many times have we said, well, uh, here's, here's what, an open door. I just, I'm just going to go through it. And it may not be God's will. He continued running through his list of reasons why he would not work. It would not work for him to go to Nineveh. Of course, they were too wicked. They wouldn't be interested. They wouldn't listen to me. Uh, they hated Jews. And for that matter, he hated them. And so he just go over this in his mind. And all the while, God in heaven continues to unfold his will. The book of Jonah shows us that God's prerogative is to do what he wants to do. Jonah would soon discover that same reality. Of course, there's a truth in Jeremiah 17, 9, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jonah did not know the blackness of his own heart. Perhaps we can identify with Jonah. When God speaks his word to us and we immediately run through a hundred excuses why we cannot do what God has imposed upon our lives. We think it is unreasonable for what God demands. So we run just like Jonah. Now we may not flee to Tarshish or we may not go to New Zealand, but we run away in our minds. And we may throw ourselves into all sorts of busy activities. We try to silence the voice of God. We may even give ourselves over to various sins or acts of defiance, showing that we will not bend our will to God. We may disobey God, and when nothing adverse happens, my son used to say, nothing's happened yet, when we'd warn him about doing something. We may think, well, nothing's happened yet, 
And we pacify ourselves by saying that it must have been okay. The Lord's not stopping us. Almost seems to be an open door to our disobedience, which is we quickly call divine approval. You know, it's, it's God's will. We say very sectimoniously. Someone has explained not only the ship, but the whole world becomes too small for Jonah. And he finds no nook or corner in all of creation, not even hell, where he might crawl in. But he must needs expose himself to the gaze of the creatures and stand before them in ignominy. And so before we have to be swallowed by a great fish, we need to stop. The psalmist said, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. And this, is, this same God will be exalted in your life. So the character of the man is disclosed. Secondly, the character of God is revealed. Now, when it says, but Jonah, that's not the end of the story. Instead, we see the patience of God addressing the unwillingness of Jonah, making him willing to go to Nineveh in obedience to God. God wins out as he always does. In the process, he drenches the paths of our lives with truth and grace. And we're left to see that God will do what he wants in spite of man's objections. You know, we live in a day of watered-down theology, and we sometimes think God is being held hostage by our whims and desires. But this book, this book of Jonah, will help us see that there is one sovereign in the universe. If a ship should have two pilots of equal power, one would, would be ever crossing the other. When one would sail, the other would cast anchor. Here were a confusion and the ship must needs perish. The order and harmony in the world, the constant and uniform government of all things, is a clear argument that there is but one omnipotent God who rules all. God rules in spite of man's objections. And we need to be thankful that he does rule. With all of Jonah's efforts to bypass the divine will, we see that man will not thwart God's sovereign will. Jonah was a messenger of God sent set apart to reach Nineveh. It was divine mercy that pursued Jonah, turned his heart, and set his feet on dry ground to preach to Nineveh. And God did not give up on Nineveh because of the reluctance of his man, Jonah. And we, need, we must not hide ourselves in worry over the events of our day. Man may try, but he cannot thwart the sovereign will of the Almighty God. Think about that the next time you listen to a newscast. God's in control. Not this political party or that political party. Not this congressperson or that congressperson. God is in control. And that ought to free our hearts to expect to see the mighty of God, arm of God displayed. Now, Jonah's reluctance and rebellion was no surprise to God. 
For God is omniscient. He knows all things. Still God called Jonah because God, God knew what God would do. Jonah thought he could escape the presence of God. But God is omnipresent. There is no escaping him. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, Whether shall I go from thy spirit, or whether shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall my, thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. You almost get the idea that it was Jonah praying those same words of David when he came to realization that God, who laid his hand upon him, would not let go. As Paul wrote in Philippians 1.6, He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You can be confident of this one thing. God can accomplish all he purposes, for our God is omnipotent. And we've seen those three omnis on display here at this point. He's all-powerful. He exercises his power for his glory. I wonder, do you find yourself trying to run from God? Where will you flee from God's presence? Or better yet, why would you even attempt to flee the presence of God? I trust we will know the joy and the utter delight of walking in obedience to the living God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven,